smells Jesus-y. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. We are the aroma of Christ. Welcome to Smells Jesus-y, a podcast from Three Crosses Church. Today we're continuing our series, Frontline Sundays. In this episode, Cam St. Clair will be speaking to us from Matthew 6, verses 5 to 14, whoever we are. Here's Cam. I um, have a problem with prayer. I understand what prayer is. So my problem doesn't come from a, a lack of understanding. My problem is I don't pray enough. I can explain away my problem in different ways. If I don't get off to the right start in the morning, then other things require urgent attention and I don't get to um, devote myself to some time of prayer. Then I justify to myself that I uh, don't have enough time. But you know, I do have time for other things I really want to do. I do have time to watch uh, James May touring around Japan on Amazon. Um, I do have time for watching other favourite TV shows. Sometimes I reflect to myself that prayer has been disappointing. I feel let down by God at times. Things I have not gone the way I had prayed and hoped. So I use that disappointment to put off prayer. Other times prayer seems unreal because it's talking to someone who is invisible. But I have gotten used to other things that seem unreal until I got to the point where they seem normal. Things like WhatsApp messages to our friends in Germany and talking instantly online to them. That seemed unreal, but we got used to it now. It seems normal. In the end, though, all these are excuses. Do you know what I'm talking about in regards to your prayer life? Am I speaking for you? and not just for me. Why do we find prayer difficult? The real issue is very simple, and Jesus puts his finger right on it in the passage before us in Matthew chapter 6. What is he telling us about the secret of true prayer? But before, I, before we do, I need to acknowledge that it may seem funny to uh, look at this passage when the talk is titled, Whoever you are, We Are. And this is a title about our identity. This series has been following um, a, a very clear pattern of whatever we do, wherever we, wherever we are, and this week is whoever we are. However, prayer, I would argue, is intimately connected to our identity Our prayer is often a window into our hearts. Our prayer reflects what we think of God and often what we think of ourselves. And so look with me where Jesus begins about uh, down in verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. So this talk... I have answers two questions and then we'll dig, just draw together what it teaches of us about who we are. And that first question, or, and these, first, these two questions relate to that opening line, our Father in heaven. And the first question is, 
what does it mean to pray to God as our Father? There are two things here, I think, to, to draw out from that idea. God as our Father. First is that God is personal. God is real. God is not some distant entity far removed from our reality. To use the term Father is to say that God has concern for each individual believer as a father has for his own child. That's personal. That's real. That's where intimacy is. And have you heard of the term Abba? Abba is the Aramaic term for father that Jesus used. And this word is used by young and older children and even adults to address their fathers. It's probably not as familiar as my daddy, but it is more familiar than saying my father. It suggests a, a reverence, a respect, but also an intimacy and a closeness. God is just as personal as we are, if not more so. And so when Jesus comes to teach his disciples about prayer, he begins with this very familiar term, my father. The second thing about what it means to pray to God as father is that God is good. If you, um, I have to turn over a page in my Bible, but if you turn to Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 to 11, oh, you can see uh, this idea being brought out as in fatherhood. Which of you, he's uh, speaking to men, if your son asks for bread, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Can you see that there? That this whole notion is that behind being a father is that you know what is, that you are good, that you know what it is to care for, what it is to be concerned for your children. And God fulfills this idea of fatherhood in the most maximized way. He knows what it is to lovingly care for children more than any father in the world has ever known. He's the one who conceived of the idea of fatherhood and being a father. Now your experience of your father may have been terrible, which I'm sorry if that's the case, or it might have been scarring both emotionally and physically. And they might have been this present but absent um, father, failing to take their responsibility seriously. Or they may have been overbearing. And this is the reality of uh, fathering in a world in rebellion against God. And it's terrible. But God reveals what fatherhood truly is, not a twisted version. Instead, why don't you take a second to picture everything you'd love your father to be? Caring, patient, kind, generous, peaceful.
peaceable, gentle at the right times, and firm when it's needed to be firm. Courageous, standing up, defending, approachable, faithful, just, impartial. I mean, as you picture what you'd love your ideal father to be, I imagine you can think of more adjectives than those. But in God, we have, as Jesus refers to him as our father, we have a father who intimately cares and knows us, who knows how to provide good gifts to those who trust in him. And so the right way to pray begins with knowing and remembering that God is good. That God is good. He is our good Father. Well, um, our next question for this passage is to think about what does it mean to pray to God in heaven? What do you think when you say that God is in heaven? What comes to mind? Do you imagine heaven to be like a place with a throne room glittering with diamonds, jasper and gold and sapphires? That God is so bright, his brightness is filling up the whole room and you are just dazzled by the majesty of it all? Or do you find it hard to imagine what heaven is like and only see blankness? You can only imagine it by thinking about what it isn't likely to be, what isn't likely to be there. You see God as like a ghost-like figure, but just really huge ghost-like figure. Or do you find that you can't think or see anything when you think of heaven? But whatever it is, it's somewhere else. And so you might say, God is in heaven, is to say that somewhere God is somewhere else, but somehow he's near to us too. Well, if they are some of your thoughts about heaven, it might come as a relief to discover that the Bible has something else very different in mind when it comes when it tells us about God being God's in, is in heaven. Listen uh, here, or you can flip over to how one of the kings of Israel began his prayer to God in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6. I know it's a bit of a big Bible flip, so you can just listen. It's just the one verse. Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the nations, all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Do you hear what that king is saying? For God to be in heaven did not mean to him that God was a long way away or that God was busy and he needed some of his attention grabbed. Instead, he is saying that God is mighty and powerful. To be in heaven means to be great, in control or powerful and therefore able to do whatever he decides to do and nothing can get in his way. It also means that he is involved in the world as the ruler over the world. 
So Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. So God in heaven means that God is the great ruler. The ruler of the whole universe. The whole universe is under his control. In heaven here is not about God's dwelling place, but about his greatness. Regrettably, um, churches in Perth today, I think, communicate God as like a great, wonderful, fluffy teddy bear. Someone you come up to give a cuddle. The language, whether it's in the song sung or what's said from up front, is not quite heretical and it's not quite blasphemous. It's something worse than an isolated one-off heresy. It's a pattern of irreverence. It's a shallow theology and experience-dominated religious kind of practice, which has hollowed out the strength of the church and its witness. It's hollowed it out because they've lost teaching corporately and communicating and acknowledging the greatness of God, God's transcendence. Friends, God is great. The whole world is under his control. But does that idea of God with absolute power make you feel uneasy? It's true that supreme power can be a terrible thing. We only need to look at history of the last century. Names like Hitler, Mao, Stalin, Mugabe, Saddam Hussein, Pol Pot, just to mention a few, show us the evil of such power. Supreme power in the wrong hands has destroyed millions of lives and made misery of millions more. But if supreme power is in good hands, then it would be a very different story. It would, be, it would no longer be a power to fear. Instead, we would welcome it and rejoice over it. And this is exactly what we find in God. Supreme power married to absolute goodness. Mercy and might held tightly together. Sovereign greatness and saving grace of God joined unbreakably and eternally. We are right to be troubled at the prospect of supreme power in human hands. But when it's in God's hands, it gives us confidence to come to him and to ask him for what we need. There are no limits to what we can ask for. And, there is no, and we can come to him as often as we like. There's no, Cameron, you've reached your daily limit today. I can't handle it anymore. I'm not great enough. No, God is great. I can come to him unlimitedly. Because God is a good father and he's a great ruler. So, how do we draw this together to thinking about our uh, identity? Well, it's important for us to see that in here, Jesus is teaching his disciples to address God in the same way he does. Jesus has been referring to God more than any other uh, way as Father. And then he invites his disciples to be able to call on God as his Father. And that's possible 
by Jesus' ministry, by his death and by his resurrection, which has brought about those who trust in Jesus, those who know that Jesus has died on their behalf, those who have vowed allegiance and obedience to Jesus and confess that Jesus is Lord. That has brought about the means by which they can call upon Almighty God, God who is great as we discovered, and meaningfully say, Our Father. Because we are his children now. So 1 John uh, 3, 1 uh, captures this really nicely. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Friends, whoever we are, we're loved with all wisdom and understanding. On our front lines, no matter how significant we feel, how insignificant we feel we make all the difference in the world because we are sons and daughters of God who is a good father and a great ruler. Our value, our worth, our significance in life flows from this identity. How liberating is that? How freeing up is that? There was a young a woman who was doing well as a professional and as, a typical, as typically for young professionals, at some point her team leader invites her in for a chat and to ask her about where she thinks she's heading with her career, with, her, with this company. He wants to know what her ambition is. Liberated by the knowledge that she's a child of God, she doesn't uh, carry on about her dreams of promotion in this or that area and then proceed to give a PowerPoint plan of um, her career path. Rather, she frankly acknowledges that she is thankful and content with the position she has been given. And if leadership give her further opportunities, she'll consider that with the responsibilities she has as a uh, married woman and a church family member and other responsibilities. And this may have appeared at first uh, naive to her work colleagues when she retold this story, but to her, she is liberated from chasing up, chasing that corporate ladder. She is liberated from that perspective of life because she knows she's a child of God. It may mean that she won't be promoted as quickly as her peers. But that's okay. She knows who she is. She knows she's a daughter of God. There was a uh, highly competent and successful scientist in his field. In, in fact, this person was probably in the top six in the world in his field by the time he uh, retired. He published regularly every year. Uh, he always had a bev bevy of PhD students he supervised, and he brought in hundreds of thousands, if not millions, to the university through the grants that he um, earned every year. He outstripped his contemporaries in his workplace. However, the dean and the, his associates for many years uh, demurred over giving him promotion. He was a, a senior lecturer much longer than people are senior lecturers. And then he was an associate professor much longer than people are associate professors. Until it became kind of embarrassing 
that this associate professor was achieving more, smashing more benchmarks and KPIs and still not a full professor. But did you hear one word of complaint from this person? Not once. Did he rest on his past performances and slack off? No, not once. Was he liberated to work and be tired out by work because he was assured of who he was in Jesus as a child of the Father? Yes, he was. Friends, we are children of God and we have a good Father and a great ruler. If you're anything like me, um, your biggest problem is not wrong prayer, as Jesus describes in the first part of chapter 6, but in non-prayer. You don't really pray to impress others. In fact, you don't really pray like anyone, for you don't pray much at all. Could this be the solution to our problem? Has Jesus got, gone right to the heart of our failure? Do we need to remind ourselves that the God we belong to is a good father and a great ruler? That he is mighty and merciful? That he has us in his care and the world is under his control? Will you take this to heart and make time today to come to God? Will you tell him that you can see now that you can depend upon him in every situation? Will you tell him what you need, what those closest to you need, what you know about the needs of others? And then will you take this with you on your front lines tomorrow? Whenever things don't go according to plan, will you tell yourself that God is good and God is great? When things do do go to plan, will you tell yourself that God is good and that God is great? And then will you say this to him? This is not rocket science, is it? It's not some deep, complex alchemy that needs to be unraveled by a special formula. The key to praying right is to knowing who God is. And we do know who he is. We know what he is like. We know we can depend on him. We are his sons and daughters in Christ. So let's do it. So let's do it.